Can I ask? Just what do you want from me? Just what do you want from me? Just just what do you want from Andrew and I? Now, I'm not trying to be rude here. I just want to get you to think. Because some churches make it very clear what they want from their pastors. Now, consider this advertisement uh, that I found yesterday. A local church seeking a senior pastor with, okay, number one, a communicator. Preaching at three services 80% of the time. Expository approach to sermon preparation. Effectively communicates God's word in an engaging and relevant manner. Communicable passion for prayer. Number two, you must be a visionary leader and an effective vision communicator. A team builder and team player in pursuing the vision for the church and effectively uniting the congregation in that vision. Uh, he must be a shepherd. He must lead, feed, and protect the congregation. He must have genuine, communicable love for congregation. A highly relational person who thrives in public life. And he must also be an overseer. He must understand how smaller parts of the church ministry fit within the big picture of the church. He must have the ability to lead staff and lay leaders in ongoing assessment and direction of the church. Okay, there's more. He must also have specialized skills. Okay, listen to this one. Huh? He must be able to transition the church to the next level of effectiveness. Now, if you don't know what that means, it simply means making the church grow bigger. See, very worldly, right, to say uh, we want a person who can make the church grow bigger, so they, they put it in uh, spiritual terms. Uh, transition the church to the next level of effectiveness. Effectiveness means, if you're more effective, means there's more people. Okay, some more. And it ends with saying this. Before submitting a resume, please affirm that you fit all the qualifications listed below. Significant, spiritual, character, leadership, relational, organizational, and passion qualities. Now, I'm surprised that they didn't put in, can also sing and play the violin. <clears throat> now, you see, not that what this church is looking for is sinful uh, or ungodly, but it does show where their focus is. Now, David Wells has said it well, what churches are today looking for. The modern pastor must be an efficient manager or perhaps more to the point, a capable CEO. And he notes that the central function of the pastor has changed from that of a proclaimer of the truth to becoming a manager of the enterprise we call church. Now friends, this is just one of many ways the world has influenced us more than the Bible has. And so the way forward is of course a, a turning back to the Bible to seek with God's help that are our convictions of ministry and leadership are predominantly shaped by the Bible and not by the world. So what do you want from me? What do you want from Andrew and I? What do you want from your elders and deacons? 
Well, our passage today is one of those places in the Bible that help us with answering those questions. Now, as we, as we turn to it, we will see that what it says, it says not just about leaders, but what it says, it speaks about what the fundamental Christian life should be about. Please pray with me as we ask God to help us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this part that you have given us the privilege of spending time uh, with the help of your spirit looking at that we may understand that our convictions of ministry and leadership of, of the basic Christian life may come uh, from your word. Father, please help us and shape our convictions. Amen. So I have two points. If you look in the bulletin, it's not there. It's because I, I took a long time pondering exactly how to phrase it. Okay, so the two points are, a small boast about a heavenly experience. That's verses 1 to 6. And the second point is, a great boast about a thorny experience. Now, it sounds quite straightforward, right? But I took a long time thinking about it. Okay, so the, the first point, verses 1 to 6, a small boast about a heavenly experience. Flow with me to verse 1. I must go on boasting. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. Now friends, we must remember why Paul is even talking about boasting in the first place. Okay, Paul, as you know, had brought the gospel to Corinth and in God's mercy a church was founded. But after he left, there were some Jewish teachers who came in from the outside. Now, according to worldly standards, these Jewish leaders were very impressive. Because according to their culture, a religious leader had to be an impressive speaker. He had to have a strong and dynamic personality, and there should not be any observable weaknesses, and the leader should be a picture of power. And so, in other words, these new arrivals were everything that Paul was not. And they were quite keen to point out all the places where Paul was lacking. And in so doing, these, these rival leaders were drawing the Corinthians away from Paul and drawing them to themselves. Now, if it was only Paul's reputation, it was only his, his feelings that were hurt, I doubt that Paul would have been uh, bothered to do anything. But he saw clearly that these rival leaders were doing a lot of harm to the church. Because by projecting such a worldly image of what it means to be a Christian leader, these new arrivals were actually offering people, as Paul says in chapter 11, a different Jesus, giving them, presenting them a different gospel. In being so influenced by their culture uh, about what a Christian leader should look like, these rival leaders were actually moving further away from the true Jesus. The true Jesus who came in humility and weakness. The, the, the true Jesus who suffered humiliation at the hands of his enemies. The true Jesus who was a picture of powerlessness as he hung there on the cross. These new arrivals and the Corinthian Christians had forgotten that they were called to follow a crucified Christ. But instead, these new arrivals were boasting about their talents, boasting about their skills, 
And they were also openly bragging about their ecstatic spiritual experiences. Which is why, at the start of chapter 12 here, Paul is turning his attention to deal with this point. These leaders bragging about their spiritual experiences. Look with me to verse 2. And Paul says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that. Now, so who is this? Who is this man in Christ who was caught up to the third heaven? Now, obviously, if you read the whole thing, Paul is actually talking about himself. And you notice, he, he, he refers to this man as not, you know, this apostle or this Christian leader. He calls him a man in Christ. What is, what is a man in Christ? A man in Christ is simply another way of speaking about an ordinary Christian. See, he doesn't say, I, I know of an apostle. I know of someone who was commissioned by the Lord, caught up. No, no. He simply says, I know an ordinary Christian man. And, and, and he was caught up to the third heaven. What, what is the third heaven? Well, the Jewish cosmology was, uh, the first heaven is the atmosphere. Second heaven is where the angels and the demons, uh, live. And the third heaven is where God's throne is. So Paul is actually saying he was caught up and brought to the very presence of God. Now you see, when did he have this vision? When did he have this revelation? When did he have this experience? It was 14 years ago. And only now, because he is forced to do it by these uh, rival leaders in the Corinthian church, only now does he mention it. Right, in his earliest letter, Galatians, when there was a dispute also about his authority, he could have easily mentioned it. But he does not. Only now, when these rival leaders are bragging about their experiences, is he forced to tell people about it. And he tells it in such a way that he, he, he distances himself as much as possible. You know, calling himself a man in Christ only and referring to himself only in the third person. Now notice twice he says, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. Now there's a lot of um, things filled about what Paul means by that. But I think the emphasis is not so much on that, but Paul's emphasis in repeating that twice is that God knows. I do not know, but God knows. God is the one who gave me this experience. God is the one who was in control. God is the one who brought me to the third heavens and gave me this vision. Now verse 4 tells us that Paul heard inexpressible things, which he is not permitted to share. In other words, Paul was given a very a personal and private vision and revelation. Now at this point we must ask, why? Why was Paul not you know, permitted to share? Why was he given something that he wasn't allowed to share? Now, I think John Kelvin has the right answer. And Kelvin says, This thing 
happened for Paul's own sake. For a man who had awaiting him troubles hard enough to break a thousand hearts, he needed to be strengthened in a special way to keep him from giving way and to help him persevere undaunted. You see, remember this vision was given <clears throat> 14 years ago, before Paul began his missionary journeys. And in those 14 years, Paul had experienced uh, betrayal, shipwrecks, uh, he had experienced beatings, heartaches, he had experienced bereavement and opposition. And so a very special experience, a, a supernormal experience was given to a man who had a very special calling. <clears throat> now one final observation. You must see how much caution and restraint Paul exercises when sharing about this vision. How different are the rival leaders? How different are some Christian leaders today who, you know, every opportunity they get, they are constantly telling people about uh, the last vision, the last dream, the last aesthetic spiritual experience that they had. With obvious self-promotion, these Christian leaders parade their alleged spiritual experiences so that people will listen to them, so that people will follow them. Now at this point, I must clarify. Because you might think this way. Now, what we've looked at does not mean that we are not supposed to share any spiritual experience with each other. Okay, it does not mean that. Now remember, Paul's one was a very special one, and he was permitted not he was he was not permitted to share it. It was a super normal spiritual experience. Now, so don't go away thinking that we are not supposed to share with each other things that we learn, things that the Lord is teaching us or doing in our lives, to, and to share that with each other. In fact, in fact, it's the opposite. In fact, we must do more of that. Right? Hebrews ten tells us, you know, encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. But when we when we come together, so often our tendency is to talk about the weather, you know, the haze, talk about work, talk about children, talk about our hobbies, talk about movies, talk about what music we're listening to, talk about you know, gossip about this person, gossip about that person. Our tendency is to do all those things, but share what we've learned from our quiet time, share about evidences of grace in our lives or, or, or opportunities that the Lord has given us to share, to testify of Him to our colleagues or our family members. The one thing that we like to share with one another, you know what is the one thing? One, the one thing that we are constantly saying they were constantly sharing with each other. Do you know what it is? My guess, because I haven't done any uh, scientific analysis of this, but, but I think <clears throat> in our Singaporean culture, the one thing that we are always sharing and telling each other is, I am so busy. Alright? Nah, there may be some truth in that. Huh? Don't, don't. See, but recognize that that only seeks to tell people you are very important and you don't have time for them or you know whatever you want to ask me to do, okay, think twice because I'm, I'm so busy. 
everybody knows. Everybody is busy. Everybody knows that each other is busy, right? Unless you are. Uh, even, even retirees are busy sometimes. So, there's no point, no point sharing that. Okay, instead, um, think about what the Lord is doing in your life, what the Lord is teaching you that is edifying, that is, that is good for the building up of your brother and sister. Now, I remember being on the bus with this brother who shall remain uh, unnamed. And I thought, oh, this is a long journey. We have opportunity to, to talk and, you know, catch up and share lives. And the moment he sat down, even though I was in the middle of talking to him, he took out his phone and started playing again. And, and I, so I, I observed that for a while. I was still trying to talk to him and he was giving me monosyllabic answers. Finally, I said to him, Brother, if after this bus trip, and I die tonight. You will regret it that you did not take opportunity to talk with me and encourage me. <clears throat> Friends, it is so easy to just whip this out. It is so easy to whip this out, to, to distract ourselves by playing some stupid game on this. Or, or even if we're thinking about sharing our experiences, so often the things that we are thinking of sharing is what can be posted on Facebook? No, friends. Open your eyes to see. Evidences of grace. Open your eyes to see what the Lord is doing in your life. And not to share it so that it makes you look big or important, but share it with, with that humility and, and caution and restraint. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord, Paul says. Now, we see how careful Paul was in not exalting himself. Look with me to verse 6. Verse 6. He says, Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool, because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. You see how careful he is? He is careful that people will not uh, think too highly of him. You see, Paul is very wise in this. Because if he had openly boasted about his experience, then that would open the door to every Tom, Dick or Harry to just come in and, and share all sorts of uh, mystical experiences to claim authority for themselves. Right? So, I mean, how are you going to react if I said to you, um, I had a vision last night. And the angel told me that, that, that I've been chosen to plant a church in, in Sabawang. Okay? And BTPC is, is, is meant to support me in this church plant. We're going to plant BTPC too. And because Sabawang is so far from my house, the church must supply me with a car. So that, you know, this ministry can, can, can go unhindered. How, how are you going to react? Are you going to say, uh, no, I think God was wrong in this. I mean, Right, so, see, that's why Paul wisely sets the example of wanting his reputation to be based only on the things that can be seen, on his character and on his teaching. So, friends, we have seen Paul share 
And we've seen how contrary to the rival leaders, he is making, he's, he's reluctantly making a small boast. And in fact, in, in reluctantly making this small boast of this heavenly experience, Paul is actually paving the way to what he actually wants to boast about. He's paving the way for him to make a great boast. And that's our second point. Paul's great boast about a thorny experience. Verse 7 to 10. Verse 7. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now we are going to unpack this uh, section by asking a series of questions. So A, why was the thorn given? Well, verse 7 makes it clear. Uh, It was given so, so as to keep Paul from getting puffed up, getting conceited, because he had experienced this this supernormal, third heavenly experience. Now, who was the thorn from? Now, obviously, we know it's from God, right? It is, uh, Paul says, uh, a thorn was given. You know, it's used in a passive sense. It was given by God. And since God's purpose is to keep Paul from being puffed up, right? Uh, God doesn't want Paul to be full of pride. Uh, we know that the thorn is from God. Then why does he say it was the messenger of Satan? So if, if, if it's from, from God, then why does he also call it a messenger of Satan? Well, it shows us <clears throat> that God often uses the devil. That God often uses the devil to accomplish his purposes. God's purposes are accomplished also through the devil. Satan was was the one who sent the, the, the thorn under God. And Satan's purpose for sending the thorn obviously was not to keep Paul from becoming prideful. I mean, he wants to see Paul becoming pride, prideful. But Satan, when he sent the, the thorn, his purpose, his design, was probably to try and destroy Paul's ministry. He wanted Paul to fail. He wanted to weaken Paul so that Paul could not go on those missionary journeys, whatever, whatever. But God was using Satan to accomplish God's purpose. And God's purpose for the thorn was to keep Paul from spiritual pride and to achieve his glorious purpose. C. What was the thorn? Now, a lot more ink has been spilled about what this thorn is. People say uh, it was some sin. Some people say it was a psychological thing. Others say it was a physical illness, you know, he had weakness in the eyes, or gout, or, you know, kidney problems. Uh, others say it was the, the opposition that he faced. Now, you know, I mean, whole 
whole books have been written on this, whole chapters and commentaries are devoted to this, but what is clear, okay, what is clear is that nobody knows. I mean, nobody alive like, today knows. And that is a good thing. Because if Paul had been more specific, maybe it was a migraine. Then, ah, see, only those with migraine problems can relate to Paul. But you see, now it's so generic. It is a thorn in the flesh. And so, all of us who face uh, different weaknesses can relate to this and can see the principle that Paul is trying to teach us here. Question D. How did Paul respond to the thorn? Well, you see there, he prayed three times. Three times I prayed to the Lord. Now, when he says three times here, it does not mean he prayed once, then he prayed a second time, then he prayed Jesus. It's, it's more a way of saying he prayed repeatedly. And three times signals that he had come to the end of that process of praying because he had heard a reply from God. So, question E. Was his prayer answered? Was his prayer answered? And the answer is, yes and no. You see, when Paul prayed, he was praying that he could have relief, deliverance from the thorn by having the thorn removed. Right? That's, that's what Paul had in mind. That's what he was praying. God, this, this thorn in my flesh, please remove it so that I can have relief from it. But God's answer was to give relief, but not by taking the thorn away. But instead, God's answer was to give relief by giving more grace, sufficient grace. So, no, the Lord did not take the thorn away. But yes, God answered by giving more grace so that Paul could bear up under uh, the suffering of that thorn. Now, when Paul speaks about weaknesses here, what does he have in mind? Question F. What weaknesses does Paul have in mind? Now, the safest thing is to actually look at what Paul says. Now, in verse 10, Paul actually says, insults, hardships, persecutions, difficulties. Now, this tells us that the weaknesses that Paul has in mind is not sin. He is not talking about uh, our sinful habits or sinful addictions. He is not talking about uh, foolish choices, uh, ungodly decisions that we make. See, he is not saying, you know, God's grace is sufficient for me because God's power is made perfect in my ungodly decisions. No, he is not teaching that. And Christians must not say that God is promising that. Paul is talking about situations, circumstances that are that are overwhelming, that are uh, beyond our control. Situations that show us to be clearly not in control and weak. And you see, because Paul understood the words of Jesus about his power being made perfect in weakness, Paul can honestly say, I will boast gladly. My heavenly experience, I reluctantly boast. But my weaknesses, I will boast gladly. I, I delight in my weaknesses because Christ's power is made perfect in my weakness. See, how different 
the average Christian response. How differently to Paul the average Christian response. Because our tendency, when asked to serve or asked to do something, our tendency is to say no. Because we are afraid committing to this, saying yes to this, might put us in a stressful situation. And we don't want to be in a stressful situation. We don't want to be in a situation where my strengths are, are not, you know, clearly able to deal uh, magnificently with the uh, task that's required. Our tendency is to use busyness as an excuse not to serve because it might, it might be too difficult, it might be too stressful. Now, most of you know that uh, God has give, given us uh, a third son, and most of you are probably wondering about his name. So his name is Adani, and he's named after a missionary to China by the name of David Adani. So David, David Adani um, was a missionary to China, and he also served in Singapore for eight years, uh, then heading up uh, a new Bible college. And David Adani was also very involved in student work, which is something Maria and I are very passionate about. But the thing that struck us most about David Adeny was that in many respects, he was just an ordinary man. I mean, his, this, this, this biography I read more than 10 years ago, but I can still remember, you know, before a talk, the biographer would share about how David Adeny would, would agonize and be so anxious and nervous, you know, just before giving a talk. A very ordinary man. But in his life, what, what you can see clearly was an extraordinary God at work. And David Adeney wrote this once. And again, again, it's more than 10 years, so I'm paraphrasing him. But he wrote this. He said, Oh, what a joy. Oh, what a joy to be given a task that is far beyond our abilities. For when that task is accomplished, all the applause would go to him and not to us. David Adeney understood that he cannot look at his ordinariness, his weaknesses, and then decide what he can do or cannot do. But to look at what an extraordinary God is capable of doing in him. See, friends, what we need to see is that this, this theme of power in weakness, it runs through the whole letter of 2 Corinthians. And it comes to this climax in the Lord's answer to Paul. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Now what we must recognize and what we must realize is that this, this theme of power in weakness was the theme of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just the theme of 2 Corinthians, but it was the theme, it was the pattern, it was the motive of our Lord Jesus Christ. The pattern of power in weakness was supremely displayed in the cross of Christ. Because you see, in, in God's plan of salvation, there had to be weakness as Jesus hung there on the cross. Supreme picture of weakness. There had to be that before there could be seen the power of resurrection. God raising him to new life and guaranteeing salvation for all who trust in him. God's strength was powerfully displayed 
in Jesus' weakness. And so, because this was the pattern in Christ, in our Master, in our Leader, it is the pattern for us who follow Him. Do you understand? That's why this is fundamental to the Christian life. Because we are called to follow a crucified Christ. That was His pattern. That's the path He's walking. That's the path He calls us to follow. And because this is fundamental to the basic Christian life, this is what we must ask for in our leaders. Not leaders who rely and rejoice and boast in their strength, but leaders who rely and boast in grace, who knows something about God's power in weakness. You've been very patient. Let me end by <clears throat> telling the story of John Stott. John Stott in 1958 was called to Australia to do a series of university missions, going to various uh, universities to speak on campus, uh, you know, for the non-Christian students. And it was a two-month tour, and his last stop was at Sydney. And by the time he reached Sydney, he caught a Sydney bug. And John Stott lost his voice. He, his, his throat was red. It was sore. And so, there was one last talk coming up. And he felt he couldn't do it. He, he, he could barely raise his voice above a whisper. And so he contemplated calling the, uh, the student committee and telling them, you know, I can't do this last talk. You know, you better go and find someone else. Because, of course, he doesn't want to look like a fool. I mean, he's an internationally renowned speaker. Going to be speaking to you know, thousands of students and then he's there. Like that. So of course he contemplated not doing it. Uh, but friends encouraged him to uh, still try and do it. And so there he was, 30 minutes before the talk, in the room waiting with the students. And he asked the chairman, please read to me the passage about the thorn in the flesh. So the, the chairman read it. And they prayed for him. And during the whole talk, John Stott shared his, his prayer was, you know, God, I'm depending on you. Fulfill, show your power in my weakness. And his voice was so, so croaky. He, he couldn't, he couldn't, you know, have, have different pictures. He was speaking in a monotonous way. He couldn't display his personality uh, with his voice. And right at the, at the very end, all he could do was simply issue a, a very simple invitation for anyone who wanted to trust in Christ, this is what you must do. And there was an immediate response. And John Stott shares, he has been back to Sydney seven or eight times since the 1958 mission. And every time, every time he's been back, there is someone who approaches him with these same words. Every time. Someone comes to him and says, Hey, do you remember the 1958 mission where you lost your voice? I came to Christ that night. May God help us see this. When I am weak, then I am strong. Because His grace, His power is made perfect in our weakness.